We'll turn with me in the word of God to the epistle of 1 John, as we're continuing our way through this first letter of the Apostle John to these churches in Asia Minor and in what we know as modern-day Turkey. We have come to chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 17. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, just so we can remember a little bit of where we've been, I will read starting in verse 12. So 1 John chapter 2, and starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him and ask once again for his help this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you for this epistle of 1 John. We thank you that the Holy Spirit inspired the apostle to write it all these thousands of years ago. We pray that he would be with us even tonight and illumine us to understand what it is that he inspired John to write. We pray that we would see our Savior and our need of him more clearly as the result of how we should respond to you in gratitude. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've been coming through 1 John, as we've been seeing all the different things that John is saying that are many times uh, repeated throughout this epistle, we see that really in chapter 1, verse 5, he has set forward something that's quite shocking to us, something that's quite profound. He says in 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And sometimes it can be dangerous to be oversimplistic as we come to scripture, But I think it's not too much to say that when we come to the epistle of 1 John, that many of the things that he's been saying up to this point are coming to us as a result of that one verse, a result of that one statement, the fact that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And as we've been going through 1 John 1 and 2, we've seen all sorts of different things. John has reminded his readers, he's reminded us of the fact that we cannot say that we are sinless, but if we do confess our sins, then we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. He's reminded us of all the wonderful blessings in Christ, and even as we heard just a minute ago in verses 12 through 14, he reminds us of all the different things that are true of us because of Jesus Christ. He's reminded us of the fact that we have forgiveness, we have salvation in his name, that we have knowledge of him, and that we have overcome the evil one, we have overcome the world. And as we come now to this section in 1 John, we see the first of something, a first in this epistle, the first uh, imperative. Now, if you haven't been in school for a while and you've perhaps heard that word before, an imperative essentially in this case is a command. You'll notice that as you go through 1 John, we haven't come up to a straight-up command yet, an explicit command from the apostle to his listeners, to his readers. And really, 1 John is much like the Gospel of John, that there are not a whole lot of imperatives, not a whole lot of commands in either book that John wrote. But this is the first of ten. This is the first of ten that we will see throughout the rest of this epistle. And we can wonder, why does it come now? And what is it? 
We just tend to know that the first time a, a writer, an inspired writer, says something, it's going to be significant. It's going to set the stage for all the things he's going to say after this. And we can see here that this command is something that is applicable not only to those who are uh, dealing with these people who are coming in and teaching wrong things and leading people astray in the first century, but it applies to us as well. Even here tonight, this is a command that is for us. And so we'll see three things, especially three uh, key points as we consider what this command is. First of all, we see the command. Second, we see the conflict that is at the center of this command. And we see finally the consequences that result from whether or not you obey this command or not. First of all, though, the command itself. And we see that here in the first verse of our passage in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And perhaps that's somewhat surprising to us. Because if we think about all the things, all these things that John has said to us at this point, all that he's reminded us of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us, all that God has done for us in his Son, perhaps do not love the world or the things in the world is not the first thing that comes to our mind. Because in a way, doesn't it just seem sort of mundane? Doesn't it seem like sort of a low thing that we've been hearing about the one who has come and has shown the Father to the apostles, who has come and turned around and shown himself to his people through the apostles, and the first command is do not love the world or the things in the world. And in one sense we think that's kind of lowly. That isn't the most exciting command. In another sense we already knew that, or at least we think we did. But we can ask what it really means to not love the world. We can ask, first of all, what is the world? Because we know, boys and girls, don't we, that we use the word world in many different ways. Having just moved, I was able to find all these things that I forgot I had as they were in storage. And I discovered that I have an affinity, apparently, for globes. And I'm not entirely sure how many I have. I think it's at least four. And one of them is of the moon, so I don't think that counts. But as I'm putting together my bookshelves, as I'm putting books in them, and I'm putting globes on top, I'm reminded that the world is much larger than just this small part of Arizona that I see as I look out my windows. And often we use the world in that sense, the all-encompassing planet, this globe that God has created and placed us upon by the word of his power. And we can ask, is that what John is getting at here? Is he's trying to tell us that the physical things are wrong, we should not love them, that we should only love the spiritual things, that we should go in some sort of Gnostic direction. Well, certainly not. What John is getting at here is he'll outline it more for us. He'll fill in more details later, especially in the next chapter, is really the world is the realm or the system that set itself up against God and against his people. We see in 1 John 3, verse 1, you can see probably on that same page that you are on now, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Or 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And so John introduces this concept of do not love the world, and then he begins to explain what the world is. It's really that system and all those who are a part of it who have set themselves up, who do not know God, who do not love God, in fact, who hate God, who hate his followers as a result. We see that they do not have these blessings that we read about in verses 12 through 14, but they are the ones who are walking in darkness, who do not have forgiveness of sins, who do not know the Father who do not have something that overcomes the evil one. And as John continues in his epistles, he begins to more directly address the things that are causing problems in these churches, in these congregations in modern-day Turkey. He begins to populate, as it were, this world. 
Not only is it an abstract system, it's kind of something that's out there in our heads, but it's filled with certain kinds of individuals. He says specifically that it is the realm of false prophets, it is the realm of antichrists, and it is under the power of the devil. And so as we see this command to not love the world, we begin to immediately, don't we, begin to understand why John is giving this command to his people, why he's giving it to us. The famous church father Cyprian, who lived in the 200s AD, just very recently after uh, John and the other apostles had left the scene, was preaching to his congregation from this very epistle. And what he said was, since the world hates the Christian, why do you love that which hates you? And why do you, would you not rather follow Christ, who both redeemed you and loves you? That's a question for us today, isn't it? Since the world hates the Christian, why do we love that which hates us? Why do we love that which hates us? Certainly this is not an easy thing. The command to not love the world is not something that you can just flip a switch and say, okay, I've got it. I just had to hit that switch once and everything is going to be smooth sailing from here on out. I'm going to keep this commandment with no problem. It's going to be easy for me. No, John knows this is not an easy command. Because John knows, even as he said again and again, that he is writing to sinners, to redeem sinners, certainly, but to sinners. And even today, we are still tempted to love the world and the things in the world. But remember how John has set us up for this command. He didn't just start the epistle this way. He didn't just start with, do not love the world or the things in the world. He has reminded us, he has shown us all these wonderful things about Jesus Christ and what we have in him, how we have access to the Father through him before he gets to this. He has shown us a wonderful, glorious vision of the God we worship. A wonderful, glorious vision of the one who has done all these things for us. And how does he end that section as he's writing? Uh, In verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I know at least in the ESV there's that heading that comes in between verse 14 and verse 15 and just pretend it isn't there. What John says in verse 15 comes directly out of verse 14. That Christian, you have been given strength. You have been empowered to do these difficult things, to not love the world or the things in the world because you are strong and the word of God God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Therefore, we could say, do not love the world or the things in the world. This is the command that that John gives to us, that the Holy Spirit inspires him to say. And if this is what the world is, then what can we think of as the things in the world? What does this mean? Well, John's going to get to that in just a moment, in just another verse. But one thing we can say it is not is just a catch-all for all the things that we ourselves don't like anyway. And that's a real temptation for us, isn't it? To think that worldly things, that the things in the world, the things that we are not to love, are the things that we already are predisposed not to love anyway. Sort of takes the edge out of the commandment, doesn't it? But what John is saying here is it's not just the political positions or the music, or whatever it might be that you might look at as think of that as worldly, but it goes much deeper than this. It's much deeper than things that are just on the surface of what we see. Basically, the things in the world are the opposite of what we have from God through Jesus Christ. The opposite of what we have in verses 12 through 14 are the things that are in the world. He's going to get into this in just a moment 
But remember that the things in the world are under the sway of the devil and they are doomed to destruction. The things in the world, the things that are tempting us, these things that seem perhaps attractive at first blush, to do these things that we'll get into in just a moment, they are under the sway of the devil, the evil one, the one whom Christ has already defeated, the one over whom he gives his people victory, the ability to overcome. Basically what John is saying is do not love, do not return again to the things that have already been defeated. To the things that are so much lower, so much lesser than what you have right now. And this is because there are really two loves that we can have. It has to be one or the other. Love for the Father or love for the world and the things in the world. In verse 15, that phrase, love for the Father, is really, uh, it seems to be our love for the Father. Which presupposes, of course, his love for us. But it's talking about you can either have love for God, the Father, or you can have love for the world and the things in the world. That you cannot have both. That there's only room really for one because that is what will animate our hearts and our desires and our thoughts. He says it in the, on uh, another way of saying it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him because this is one or the other. There's only room for the one thing. I think of when I moved to seminary in California, and I was moving from Nebraska, and I was driving, and I had the car I have now, a Toyota Camry, which has enough room for a few people, but each and every single thing that I was taking to seminary had to fit, along with me. That might sound easy to you boys and girls. I can assure you, when you come across a situation like this, you have to start cutting losses pretty quickly. I can't tell you how many boxes of books I had that had to be remaining behind and staying in storage. But I knew as I put more things in, more things in, it was filling up, filling up, filling up, that I'd have to look at certain things and say this or the other. Books or clothes, as it were. And I was really tempted to go with the first one. But I knew there was only so much room for what could fit in that car. And it's the same sort of thing here. It has to be one thing or the other. There's room for love for God or there's room for love for the world and the things in the world. That is what John is saying here. That is what he is commanding us. So this is the command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. But our second uh, section this evening, we can see the conflict that goes behind this command. The conflict that sets it up. And we can think what the reason is for this conflict. Well, look at verse 16 with me. Uh, For can be perhaps best taken, best translated as because. Because all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So John is beginning to explain why there's this conflict, why it has to be one or the other. Why can't we have both? We live in a society and a a culture and a place and time, don't we, that likes to have everything we can. And we can take this in one hand and this in the other and just smush them together and assume that everything is going to work and we're going to have everything we could possibly need, everything we could possibly want. John is making it very clear that we cannot do that with love for the Father and love for the world and the things in the world. The things in the world are not from the Father. This reminds us of what we read in James 4.4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We can sort of understand that even in our own day, can't we? Boys and girls, perhaps you had the opportunity to play with your cousins or with the kids in your neighborhood or over a summer break. These uh, games where you would play as teams. I think dodgeball was probably my favorite when I was a kid. 
And what, were to ha- what would happen if I were to just run towards the balls on the center line as the whistle blows and we start and the teams are beginning to hit each other and just stand there in the middle? I'm going to get it from both sides, aren't I? It's not going to be something that's enjoyable for me. It's not going to go well for me. Because there's this understanding that you have to be on one side or the other. You cannot be in the middle here. And that's what John is getting at here. There has to be one or the other. The friendship with the world is enmity with God, as James says, and vice versa. Why? Because the things that are in the world, as he describes them, are not from the Father, but they are from the world. All these things that he has told us about in chapters 1 and 2 come to us from the Father. There are wonderful blessings that come to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. There are these wonderful things that we could not even scarcely imagine and that we certainly are far from deserving. That One of the questions in 1 John is, where do these things come from? And one of the best ways to tell whether something is wrong or right is whether or not it comes from the Father or whether or not it comes from the world. We can ask, what is this that's coming from the world? What is it that's coming from this system, this realm that set itself up against God, that hates God and his children, that does not know God and his children? We can basically categorize it as desires and pride. We see that there in verse 16. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. This is John's description, his summary, his catch-all for the things that are in the world. For what it is that animates the world and what it is that animates the things in the world. This is, in some commentators' estimation, a reference back to Eve in the garden. That as Eve came to the serpent and begins to have this conversation with him, and of course things are going south very quickly, what do we read as the temptation has really come home to roost in her in Genesis 3.6? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, some commentators have tried to say that the exact same phrases as we find in 1 John mean the exact same thing as we find in Genesis 3. I'm not sure if that's exactly true, but it's overall really a good picture for us. It's a good illustration. It really shows us what it is that sin and the desires of sin truly are. And really what we see here in Genesis 3, 6, as Eve takes the fruit and eats and gives some to her husband Adam and gives him the fruit and he eats is the beginning of the world that we are not to love. It's the beginning of the things that are in the world that we are not to love. The desires of the flesh here in 1 John, we can say, are basically sinful desires. It's that bent we have as those who still have sin within us, as those who are sinners who are fallen, to do sinful things, to do things that are wrong, to do things that are contrary to God's law. And you can label anything under this category. You can think of all the Ten Commandments as we've gone through them on Lord's Day mornings over the last several months. Anything that's a desire to break one of those commandments can be categorized as the desire of the flesh. And then the desires of the eyes even takes it a step further. It's seeking out sinful things. It's not just this idea of desiring something, but actually acting on it, of going and seeking it out, of going and finding whatever it is that you are desiring, whatever it is that is contrary to God's law, whatever it is that is a transgression of God's holy character. As we think of what the pride of life means, there's a lot of debate of what life actually means. But ultimately, it seems to be a reference to putting the wrong things in the priority that God himself only has. Whether it might be possessions or status or any other thing, 
putting that, taking something from creation, whether right or wrong, whether good or bad, and putting that in the place of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so what John is saying here is these things that are in the world cannot be boiled down to simply external actions and attitudes, things that we can see and hear and touch. But the things in the world that we are not to love are the things that are welling up even from deep within ourselves. They are desires and pride that lead to all sorts of sinful things. He's going to get into this more in chapters to come, but this is a helpful summary of what it is to be in the world, of what these things actually are. And we know as Christians, don't we, that this can be difficult. We know even as we heard this morning that we have a beginning of obedience, a small beginning of obedience, but we know that there is still sin that is uh, at war with us, that we are still dealing with the sin, with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That we are still struggling with many of these things and that many of our desires, speaking personally, are not good, are sinful, are wrong, are showing these same sorts of tendencies that John writes about us in chap- writes to us in chapter 2. And these things are not from the Father. These things should not be loved or encouraged. They should be fought against. And so what is the will of God for us? Well, we read in John, 1 John 3, 23, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. John sets up this polar opposite for us. That the things in the world are desires and pride that are wrong, that go against what God's law is, what God's holy character actually is, that are destructive in many different ways and ultimately selfish and self-defeating. God's will is for us to not love the world or the things in the world. Instead, his will for us is quite simple as Christians. We've heard it before in 1 John, and we will, I guarantee you, hear it again. That what it means to be a Christian is to believe in Jesus Christ, to trust in him for your salvation, to rest in him and in him alone, and to love one another. That that is where your desires and affections are to go, towards God and towards each other. We're tempted to think that sin will last forever, aren't we? John is going to get into that in just a minute. But what he's telling us in 1 John 3.23 is love the things that will last forever. That one day when sin is just a distant memory, when the world and all the things in the world and all the desires and pride of life are something that we remember as happening long ago, that we will still be in the presence of our God, the God whom we worship, the God who saved us, and we will still be loving one another. And this is what God's will is for us. And God's grace in Christ means that we do not have to be idolaters anymore. We do not have to follow after these things that are in the world. We do not have to be uh, enslaved anymore to what we were enslaved to before, to the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. That we can actually, actively not love the world or the things in the world. And so God is calling us to pray to him, to ask him to rearrange our desires to give us the correct priorities in life, even in the midst of the busyness, even in the midst of the temptation and the sin that is all around us when things are going right or when things are going wrong, to give us the desires to not love the world or things in the world, but to love God and love Christ and love each other instead. 
And so finally, what are the consequences as John is writing here? Well, we see this especially in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever, but the world and its desires are passing away. What John is saying here is that the world's days are numbered. And I realize, I recognize, I feel it in myself that it doesn't seem that way very often, does it? It seems like this is how things have been forever, and this is how things will continue to be. We will continually be dealing with sin, with the world, the flesh, and the devil, with temptations, with these desires that are at war within us, waging war against the desires of the Spirit. And we're tempted to despair, aren't we? We're tempted to think this is just how we have to be realists. To understand that this is what the world is, this is what the world will always be, and this is all we can expect. But you'll notice that John does not go in that direction. John does not have a defeatist attitude here. John is not convinced that these are how things will always be. In fact, he says the opposite, that the world and its desires are passing away. Not even that they will pass away, but that even now they are beginning to pass away. He has said something very similar to us in chapter 2, verse 8, if you look at that. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We looked at that and considered the fact that the true light is already shining because Christ has come, because Christ is here, because the sun is rising and the shadows are fleeing away. They have no chance to stand in the face of the light that is now shining. John is reminding his readers of this fact right now. As enticing as these things may seem, as enticing as sin may seem, and at times it seems very enticing, doesn't it? As attractive as this might seem. As much as it seems like this is what will truly give us what we want and what we desire and what we need, it is passing away. And speak especially now to the boys and girls and to the young people, those who are just coming into adulthood. I know, having been in that situation before, not that long ago, that it seems like the things that you desire, that the things you see in the world, in the flesh, that the devil is bringing to you, seem like they are going to be here forever. They seem like this is what's going to satisfy you. This is what you've been waiting for your entire life. John is telling us something different. The Holy Spirit through John is telling us something completely different than this. And no matter what age you may be, we still have these same temptations that rise up within us. These same desires for these things that can never satisfy us. John is saying, don't waste your time on these things because remember what you have. Remember verses 12 through 14. That you already have these things, Christian. That everyone who is trusting in Christ has forgiveness and knowledge, intimate knowledge of God the Father through Jesus Christ and has overcome the evil one and will overcome the world on the last day through the word of God and the power of Jesus Christ. That the world is passing away and so do not love it. As one commentator has said, there is no future in worldliness. No matter what we may think, no matter what we may be tempted to believe. The world is passing away now. 
And John sets up the opposite of this. The world and its desires are passing away. All these things that are against God are passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's a very similar thought to the end of verse 14. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This idea of dwelling, of taking root, perhaps we could say. As opposed to those sorts of plants that we probably are very familiar with here in the desert that pop up and bloom and are gone very quickly. This is a sort of plant that is dropping down roots deep, that's drinking water deeply, that's surviving even in the midst of the desert and will abide forever. It's this idea even that we can think of in, in Psalm 1, of the person who does the will of God is like a tree planted by the streams of water. It's the same sort of idea that John is getting at here, that these things are passing away. But those who obey God, who in this case believe in Jesus Christ and love the brothers, they will abide forever. Abiding has to do not with, not only with prolonged life, but with true life, with ultimate knowledge of God, with ultimate blessedness for which we were created. We have the beginnings of it now. We will see its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we can ask at this point, We've seen these three short verses in which John packs so much of what the Christian life actually is, of how we are to consider these things in the world around us, even within ourselves. And the question that is raised to us is this, Christian, what do you love? Do you love the world and the things in the world? Do you love this system that set itself up against God, these desires, this pride of life, these sinful things? Or do you love God? Do you love the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? The one who has seen you when you were at your worst, when you were in the midst of the world, in the midst of darkness, walking in darkness, and has still sent his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has still come voluntarily to live and to die and to rise again for you. That you have been given these wonderful blessings in Jesus. That you have forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness of the very things that you're tempted to do in the world. That you have true knowledge of God. A relationship with him as your father through Jesus Christ. That you are strong and have overcome the evil one because the word of God abides in you and because Christ has won the victory for you and through you and in you and will one day make it complete. As we're considering these things This evening, what John is telling us is that Christians ought to live like Christians. That those who are in the light ought to walk in the light. Ought to love the light. Ought to desire the light. And if you're here this evening and you realize that this is not something that has ever been true of you. The message is a quite simple one. To repent, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, to throw yourself on his mercy and grace. And if you're here this evening and you know you're trusting in Christ... The message is the same. To believe in Jesus Christ. To throw yourself on his mercy and grace. And to love each other, not the world or the things in the world. To love the Father. To love the Son. To love the Spirit. To love those whom all three members of the Trinity have worked to save. A Christian is someone who reminds himself or herself of God. Reminds himself or herself of the gospel. And does not love the world because we see who God truly is. 
we see what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is, and it is sufficient for us. So what is God calling us to do? Well, because these things are true, he is saying, act this way. Because these things are true, he is saying, see God as he truly is and his glorious grace in Jesus Christ as it truly comes to you. He's telling us, do not love the world or the things in the world. He's telling us to trust in Christ, to rejoice in our salvation and the wonderful benefits that we have already heard that we have in Jesus Christ, to love God and as a result to love one another. This is God's will for us. This is what we find here in 1 John chapter 2. May it be true of all of us here this evening. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for, once again, this epistle that in many ways is cyclical, that seems to cover the same ground again and again and again, but each and every single time we come across it, we recognize even more clearly who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder we have that the world and the things in the world that we are not to love are passing away. We pray that your spirit would continually remind us of these things to bring them to our hearts and our minds, that you would reshape our desires and our affections and our priorities to love you and to love our brothers and sisters in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.